Good morning, church. My name is Molly Mayhoff, and this morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. One day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, Why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even tear bigger than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Josh Kim. I'm an assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church. We're glad that you could join us this morning as we celebrate the work of the Lord in our lives as we sing and declare God's truth to one another and to our Lord as we gather to worship the Lord. We are continuing our sermon series called A Broken Prayer Journey. And so far, we have learned terms such as Lectio Divina, a prayer in the word of the Lord, as well as uh, we learned last week, Visio Divina, And I think for many of us, as we drive around Charlotte, North Carolina these days, this is really easy, isn't it? The beautiful leaves that are falling that reminds us of the God's handiwork in creation, as Pastor Brown aptly described, as a spiritual third eye, being able to see God's work in prayer as we walk with the Lord. Today's topic, again, fittingly, Pastor Brown kind of alluded to this as well. He kind of made this term. Uh, We may touch upon gastro divina like prayer as we think about our stomach, our filling of ourselves. But today's topic is actually not about filling ourselves with substance, but rather emptying of ourselves with substance. And for many of us, as we hear the word fasting, you may say this is something that I do not ever want to practice in my life or something that you never practice or never even talked about in a church context, I realize, for many of us as well. So we're going to talk about spiritual discipline of fasting in prayer this morning. In writing about fasting, American pastor and theologian John Piper once said, beware of books as well as sermons on fasting. The discipline of self-denial is fraught with dangers, perhaps only surpassed by the dangers of indulgence. And Jesus, in teaching about fasting in Matthew 6, 16, echoes the same sentiment about wrongly practice, practice uh, discipline of fasting. He says in Matthew 6, 16, And when you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. He says, I tell you the truth, that is the only reward that they will ever get. Seems to be very, very warn- uh, full of warning about fasting. Almost like hypocrites, right? Not only are we concerned about the legalism and hypocrisy that could easily pervade this discipline of fasting, and quite honestly, this is not something that you and I sign up for. Right? You don't wake up this morning and say, well, I'm going to fast. Well, I like to fast. I want to sign up for fasting, especially in a culture that you and I live in today. In the time and the culture today where we value our individuality, our choices, the discipline that calls for you to voluntarily give up something that is 
somewhat taken for granted or duly yours, is not an easy discipline to practice. To fast means voluntarily abstain from, to give up for a purpose. It is in subtraction, not an addition. So far, we talked about getting a journal, going on a walk, doing things in addition to perhaps your daily work lives, or making time for those things. But today, we're talking about something to take away from something that you may normally do, something that is easily, that comes to you. And what you will experience if you do practice discipline of fasting is that you will notice it, right? You will feel the effects of it right away. It is also important for us to note that fasting is done for a purpose. Abstinence that affects us. When practicing this discipline, it will and it has to impact our daily lives. Meaning, if you fast from something that you normally don't do, it's not a really practicing a discipline of fasting. For example, if you don't really eat sweets, for example, right? And if you say, oh, I'm going to fast from all the candy and chocolate bars in the world. It's not really fasting. You normally don't do it, right? It's not a fasting. You just decide not to do it. Also, if you do it for the purposes of other reasons um, that may benefit you, because discipline fasting in a secular world or in the world out there is often practiced for health reasons. But the fasting I'm talking about here is talking about a spiritual gain, walking with the Lord, a purposeful time where you are voluntarily fasting away, not only from food, perhaps, but other things, so that you can walk and spend time with the Lord. Generally, when one talks about fasting, as we see in text today, it tends to deal with abstaining from food that you and I eat. But the fasting doesn't only have to be confined to be uh, about fasting from food. It's actually broader than that. American pastor theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones defines fasting as follows. Fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of of some special spiritual purpose. There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for special particular reason in certain circumstances should be controlled. And that is what fasting is all about. So it's not just merely talking about food, but other things that are legitimate for a special time being. You abstain from it for a special spiritual purpose. So today's title of our sermon and our program prayer journey is called Learning to Fast. Because I believe many of us do not really know or have practiced or really understand what it means to truly fast from things. And by all means, I'm not going to go all out on deep theological meaning behind fasting. We're going to lightly touch upon it, but we're going to start by learning what it means to fast. Amen? Amen. I know I don't, I don't hear a lot of amens because you're like, I'm not fasting after this, you know, but we've got to learn what it means to fast a little bit today. And two things we'll see, fasting in prayer reveals our humanity. And secondly, fasting in prayer reveals our hope. Fasting in prayer reveals our humanity and fasting in prayer reveals our hope. I remember the first time I actually fasted from food for three days. Uh, the church culture I grew up in, and generally in a Korean church context, fasting is actually pre-regularly practiced in our lives. 
So I remember thinking, oh, 24-hour practice of fasting is not that bad because I've done it so many times. And I, I became an officer of the church. And for an Easter Sunday, we decided to fast three days from the Easter Good Friday to the, the Lord's uh, Easter Sunday. So I was thinking, okay, I'm ready for this. I've done this. Bring it on. And I was thinking, first day went by of the fasting. I was thinking, oh, it's not that bad. This is like a normal day. Oftentimes, if you actually get into something for a long time, you don't eat. You forget to eat at times. So first day doesn't really, really impact you that much. And I wasn't really thinking about it. I try to fill all my days with a lot of activities, right? Meeting with a lot of people, watching a lot of things, doing a lot of things that you're not supposed to do, right? When you're fasting, I did that, and I succeeded in not thinking about food. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Next day is going to be great. Second day, I woke up. Or rather, say, I did not want to wake up. My body started tingling. And I started feeling like I'm dying. And thinking about food at every other second of my life. Thinking, where is food? And not to, to, to make things worse, my friends gathered together in the room that we were, uh, the, the apartment we were renting together and had a meat party. They brought all his friends and I was locked away in my room thinking, I want to eat some of that food, but I'm fasting. The third day rolls around, and I cried out, Lord, take me. Take me now. Not only was I lacking in energy, but like I'm done. This is what it means to fast, right? Come take me. The hunger pain took over, and I spent those three days, not in a holy meditation of the Lord, but I spent three days cursing my life, asking God to take me. Come, O Lord Jesus, take me now. Take me to the Lord, because I need to be satisfied in my hunger. I don't know about you, but I, I would safely venture to guess a lot of our experience with fasting from food or fasting from anything mirrors my experience at times. You know, according to Healthline website, once the eight hours of non-eating happens, then your body begins to take over, realizing, oh, okay, this guy's fasting. And you know what happens then? Then start going after the stored fats for your energy. And your stomach starts to growl within you, and you hear that. And sometimes we hear that at Christ Central because our worship ends a little later, right? And it begins to hurt as well. And we call this a painful contractions that happen, and your mood starts to change. Ever heard of the term being hangry, right? Not only you get hungry in your stomach, your body begins to ache, starts to contract, and your emotions get involved in it, and you feel tired, you pain, and we call this hunger pangs, not hunger pains. Hunger pangs is a more appropriate, um, it's a more correct term, or commonly called hunger pains. And you know what's the best remedy for hunger pains are? Eat, right? If you're hungry, eat. That's what we often tell our children. Eat. You hungry? Eat, right? And actually, that is what fasting reveals for us. Hunger pangs and fasting reminds of first and foremost, and as you practice it, is that you and I are created to eat. You and I are made to feel hungry when you and I don't eat, and you feel tired and pained as a result. So before we delve into fasting, what we need to see is that we don't fast because what we fast from is bad for us, right? Food is not a bad thing for us. 
For example, in speaking of food and goodness of what God has provided against the warning of those who follow false teaching, who said fasting must be done, Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, says, um, these are people who are hypocrites and liars. Their conscience are dead. They will say it is wrong to be married, wrong to eat certain food, but God created those foods to be eaten with things by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. Apostle Paul is saying, don't listen to the false teaching. Food is not a bad thing. He's not saying don't fast, but he's saying food is a good thing. When you practice fast from food, it reveals to us that you're made to eat. Furthermore, in speaking of fasting from sex, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourself more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again, break the fast so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So in both scriptures, what we need to see that is food is good. Sex in the marriage context is good. Fasting does not occur due to depravity of the act or the object or the practice that we're fasting from. Rather, fasting involves purposeful abstinence for a spiritual reason. You voluntarily abstain from it for a spiritual reason, from something that is good. So when we know this, when we see that the fasting does in fact reveal to us our humanity, to again to emphasize what fasting does is to reveal to us when you abstain from that thing or abstain from food, it reveals to us who we really, really are, what we are made of, what we value, what our hearts yearn for, that when we fast from it, at times pain of it, our desire of it, when we often take it for granted, is taken away from us, it shows the impact, immediate impact in our lives. It mainly is showing us our humanity, that we are finite beings, absolutely dependent upon certain things in our life. And that's what Jesus refers to in today's text in Gospel of Matthew. Verse 14 says, One day disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, Why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast. In this story, the disciples of John the baptizer, who were known for fasting as in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, describes John the Baptist as he came eating no food or drinking no wine, as well as he was out in the desert, right? Fasting from society at times. In contrast, Jesus and his disciples practiced little, if any, especially apart from his initial 40-day fasting. So the John's disciples are wondering, like, why is that the case? Why are we fasting according to the Old Testament traditions, but you guys are not? You're supposed to be the teaching of the word of the Lord. In answering this inquiry, Jesus gives an example of a wedding feast and likens himself to the bridegroom. And you and I may think, well, that's a great imagery that he's using, but it's deeper than that. And through using this imagery, Jesus teaches us two things. First, the examples at times, the reasons the Old Testament, the first 39 books before Jesus' arrival, the fasting was done often practiced in time of desperation, when in danger, 
deeply longing for blessing, the presence of God. That's why people fasted in the Old Testament. But the thing that Jesus is teaching in here, and secondly, on the Old Testament, in the promise of the Messiah, what we see is the imagery of the bridegroom is often used. And I won't quote all the prophets here, but in prophets Isaiah chapter 62, Ezekiel 16, Hosea chapter 2, every time the prophets prophesy of the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, the imagery of the bridegroom was used. They would often refer to Messiah the King as the bridegroom that is to come. So by referring himself to as a bridegroom here in this text, Jesus is saying, I am the Savior that you've been waiting for. I'm the reason why you fasted in the past. I'm the reason why you long for, you yearn for the presence of God. But here I am as the bridegroom that is here. So when I am here, the reason why you have fasted, the reason why John the baptizer fasted, longed for is right here. I'm the one that all the scripture prophesied about. So the reason for fasting is here. Therefore, you do not need to fast since the hope for that fasting is right here with you. According to Christ, the absence of fasting was a witness to the presence of Christ with them. Emmanuel, God with us. But notice what Jesus says afterwards in verse 15. He says, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. What is he referring to? Not only when Jesus is talking about the time from Good Friday to Easter Sunday on the cross. Yes, that is the time that Jesus is taken away, but also the time that you and I live in right now, especially when we see Jesus picturing himself as a bridegroom coming back for the second coming in Matthew 25. Yes, we do have the Spirit of the Lord, Holy Spirit with us today, but the greatest joy and the fulfillment, the full realization of His presence is going to come when Christ returns in His second coming. Yes, He has finished the work on the cross. The full realization, the full experience of the kingdom is not yet here, and Christ will usher that in when He comes. And during those times that you and I live in between, He says, you will fast. Do you notice that, church? Sometimes we think this is a voluntarily a suggestion from the Lord. It's like, yeah, if you feel like it, right? Kind of like we do that with the reading the word and prayer, walking with God's community. Like, yeah, when I feel like it. Oh, yeah, when my schedule allows for me to do it. Yeah, when I, when I feel like I have some time in my schedule, busy schedule that I have. Oh, yeah, when I have more resources in my life, I'll do those things. No, that's not what Scripture often tells us. It says you will walk with the Lord. If you're a follower of Christ, you will spend time meditating upon the word of the Lord. When we talk about the spiritual disciplines, we've been talking about walking with the Lord. I'm not for legalism and saying this will result in your relationship with the Lord. That's not what we're saying. We're saying because you're in relationship with the Lord, you can't help but to want to spend time with the Lord. If you are in the Lord longing for the presence of God, you can't help but to fast from things because the hope of Christ is already here. That's what this discipline is talking about. In the age and the you and I are living in, we will experience the pains, the sufferings, the effects of sin that hinders our joy. And it creates aches, longings, in which reveals that we are mere creatures made to commune with this glorious God, 
but the sin and the effects of the world will gnaw at us. And we create this, we have this longing in our hearts that we want this glorious God to come. Our fasting shows us a glimpse of a hunger ache that is natural, that is part of who we are, who we're made to be, that points us back towards our God who could only truly satisfy the longing in our life. You know, when I was coming back from the fasting in a breaking of fast gathering, I was so discouraged, you know? Instead of three days of mountaintop experiences with the Lord, coming up with some kind of brand new conviction, whatever it may be, I just thought about food the whole time. Every moment of my life, every second of my life, I was thinking about food, and I was absolutely dejected, thinking I'm not worthy. Man, I fasted three days, but look at me. Although I may not have been like those guys who told everybody in the world that I was fasting, but my life definitely reflected that in crying, take me now, Lord, take me. I went to my mentor all dejected, saying, man, I failed in fasting. I never want to fast again. And my mentor just looked at me and said, it's supposed to be like this, right? It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to reveal to you what you really long for when things are taken away. It really actually shows you how desperate you often get. If you fast from social media and long to want to be in social media, that shows how addicted you are to that. It's supposed to be hard. If it's not easy, if it's easy for you to fast from things, perhaps that's not something that you are addicted to or something that you're attached to. First and foremost, we have to understand that fasting in prayer shows us how fickle we are, how finite we are, how addicted at times we are. It functions to mirror to show us who we really are in light of who God is and points us back to the Savior who could only satisfy and save us. Fasting and prayer reveals our humanity. But not only so, our fasting in prayer reveals to us our ultimate hope. As we see our humanity broken, aching, yearning, it points us ultimately to our ultimate hope that can fully satisfy Chinese pastor and theologian Xi Sheng Mo, more affectionately known as Pastor Xi, was a Chinese pastor in the 19th century whom after his conversion spent rest of his life working with opium-addicted Chinese. He fabricated his own medication to treat opium addicts and many were healed not only with the medication he provided, but also God's grace in the life of prayer and fasting that he lived out. It was said of him, whenever it was necessary to make a fresh supply of medicine, he began with prayer and fasting. It was his habit to go without food the whole 24 hours of the day given to that work. Sometimes he was so exhausted towards the evening that he could hardly stand. Then he would go away for a few minutes alone to wait upon God. Lord, it is thy work. Give me thy strength, was his plea. And he always came back fresh and reinvigorated as if with food and reset and rest. Church, what's important for us to note is that what made Pastor Xi's fast wasn't the absence of Christ. 
He was not fasting with hopes of a miraculous forcing of God's hand, as if to say, God, I'm serious enough to fast about these things, so you better show up. Look how much I'm sacrificing, even to the point of going without food, show up. That's not what he was fasting about. But rather, his fasting in prayer revealed his utter hope for the only one who could heal and deliver this impossible task that he was up against. His ultimate hope was not in his medicine or even in his efforts to save and love these people, but rather the overwhelming power of the Spirit of the Lord to transform the lives of those whom he came in contact with. And church, that's what we see in the scripture today too, don't we? As in Jesus' response to John's disciples here, he outlines what this new fasting the disciples are going to do, that you and I are going to do, is going to be all about and the hope that it's going to be rested in. Verse 16, Jesus says, Besides, who would patch the old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into the old wineskin, for the old wine will burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in the new wineskins so that both are preserved. Some, in reading this text, wrongly applies this text to say, well, see, Jesus says the old way is gone. No more fasting. Praise the Lord, right? New wineskin is here. New clothing is here. We don't have to fast anymore. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. Because read the verse right before. He says, you will fast, right? We've got to read the verse in context. So rather than saying they won't fast anymore, what Jesus is describing is the new reason, the New Testament hope, the ultimate hope that the practice of fasting will be based on and looks forward to. Fasting in prayer now has a different foundation. If the fasting in prayer in the Old Testament yearned for, longed for presence of the Lord, the New Testament fasting Jesus is ushering in begins with the presence of Christ in it. Fasting in prayer now, today, has a different foundation, mainly in the hope of Christ who came as the reason for you and I can fast. To unpack this a little bit more, the new fasting will now rest upon the finished work of Christ, finished work of the bridegroom on the cross, meaning we have seen the glory. We have seen what Christ's work has done in our lives. You, if you are in Christ, if you are in relationship with our Savior today, you have seen and tasted the goodness of the Lord. So you're not fasting for Christ's presence to be with us today. We fast because we long for the presence because we had a taste of it. So when we practice the discipline of fasting, you're not fasting so that you can work your way up to more of His favor or goodness. You're not merely fasting to get what you don't have or try to get God to work in your favor, that's a false theology. In his false theology, it diminishes the power of God already at work. Rather, you fast in prayer because you already have Christ. His grace is sufficient for you. His work on the cross is complete. You are his child. You are his beloved. You have tasted his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness, his power at work in your life. So you fast because you long for the fullness of God. You cannot but to long and yearn for that. Your hope and your desire is oriented to this hope. 
You know when God is present, his power is at work. You know and you see this power at work, and you see it where? In Scripture. It testifies to us. But not only so, if you're in relationship with the Lord, you also testify to that in your life. You have seen the power of God, so you long for more of this. You testify, you long for it. That's why you fast for it. It's not a perfect analogy, but bear with me on this. I know McDonald's McRib is back. Uh, I had this twice already this week. I'm not proud of it, but man, it's so good. Isn't it like something about that? I know it's just nothing, right? If you really look at it, it's nothing, but something is so good. But have you ever had filet mignon or amazing prime rib? You have had that, right? Compared to that, McRib is nothing, right? But for some reason, we always want McRib. But if you have tasted the goodness of prime rib or filet mignon, why are we satisfied with McRib? When we fast, for McRib, what we, we're saying is not that we have never had fine rib or filet mignon, but we're saying we want that. We're created for that. We long for that. So we fast at times for things that may still be good, but ultimately we're saying we want the best that God has offered to us. And that's what we see in the first century church practice throughout the scripture. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, talks about fasting and prayer. Among the prophets and teachers of the church, the Antioch of Syria or Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manion, a childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day as this man were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Acts chapter 14, verse 21, 23. After preaching the good news in their and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we may suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. You see, in both times in the first century church, praying and fasting was often indication of the gravity of the task at hand. One is sending a missions and also church leadership here. However, more importantly, what we see in this text is church's ultimate hope. In laying of the hand of the gravity of the situation of sending on the missions, working of the Lord's at hand, what we see is they fasted and pray as if to say, this work is not possible apart from the power that comes from Christ, from the finished work of Christ. What this church and the practice is teaching us is that we yearn, we hope, we, ugly, uh, we eagerly await the coming king. And in the meanwhile, we go preach the word, we shepherd your church, we care, we love those around us with the power of the spirit, and that's the gospel work. That is part, that's the call of the every church, as Acts 14, 23 reminds us. Do you see that? It says every church, every church is called in this discipline to yearn, to hope, to look to. The fasting is not done for the sake of fasting. Fasting was done so that we can look to the ultimate hope. We could turn our eyes to the only one that could satisfy the one that has done the work, every church, every follower of Christ is called to look for, 
yearn for more of him. Prayer and fasting not only shows us gravity of the issue at hand, but it shows us that hope that is found in the gravity of the issue at hand. American pastor, theologian, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, is known for his civil rights leadership. But what we also learn throughout the summer as we walk through Dr. Barbara Peacock's book, that this man was a man of prayer. Right? I loved it because I, I got to see a glimpse of behind-the-scenes work. That his also prayer was often accompanied by fasting as well. In a telegram Dr. King sent to fellow nonviolent labor advocate uh, Cesar Chavez, he wrote, As brother in the fight for equality, I extend the hand of fellowship and goodwill and, the, and wish continuing success to you and your members. You and your valiant fellow workers have demonstrated your commitment to the right righting grievous wrongs forced upon exploited people. We are together with you in spirit and determination that our dreams for a better tomorrow will be realized. What does it profit a man to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't have enough money to buy a hamburger? It is ever so present in how he approached his work, deep in prayer, often accompanied by fasting, In the words of Coretta Scott King, quoted by Dr. Barbara Peacock, for my husband, Martin Luther King Jr., prayer was a daily source of courage and strength that gave him the ability to carry on in even the darkest hour of our struggle. With his head in his hands, Martin bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud to God, Lord, I am taking a stand for what I believe is right. People are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they will falter. I'm at the end of my power. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. I don't know about you, but I loved reading Dr. Peacock's book along with the Browns throughout the sabbatical. Because sometimes I think we often focus too much on the work of people like Reverend Martin Dr. Luther King Jr. I mean, great work. We definitely should highlight that. But sometimes we focus too much on the work of the people. But what we must also see, as Dr. Peacock points out, is what fuels their work in the first place. The hope that is found in this situation. The ministry, the work of the king was not only done in front of the people, but it was done at the kitchen table with heads bowed in desperate prayer, in prayer and fasting, crying out to the Lord for the fuel, for the work that is the hand, the hope found in the situation, hope that fueled the impossible task. American theologian, pastor Howard Thurman says, when people under siege face the power within, they uncover a bottomless resourcefulness that ultimately enables the person to transform the spear of frustration into a shaft of light. This power that he's referring to talks about the power of the hope that we find in the gospel truth. Church, sometimes, sometimes people ask us, our church at times, why so much on social justice? and not the gospel. Why so much on social justice and not the gospel? 
Well, first of all, as my beloved professor, American theologian Jack Collins would say, when you try to put two ideas against each other, you have to make sure, are they mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive? They're not. The gospel and social justice are not mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. And I hope you notice everyone I quoted today. And did you see all these past theologians? The reasons why they fasted and prayed? All of them, right? Their fasting and prayer was in the hope of the finished work of Christ. Their fasting and prayer was on the fasting of longing for the bridegroom to fully return. Their fasting and prayer was based on the new wine and the new wineskin type of fasting. It's individually worked to bring about the work of the gospel. Piper, Lloyd-Jones, he, Martin Luther King Jr., Thurman, all did not fast so that their fasting can somehow, somehow twist God's hand to change the work. Rather, their fasting and prayer show utter complete dependence on the one that could transform the hearts and the lives of those who they are called to minister to. So that means, church, if you and I are doing this right as the church, it's not just institution, but all of us as the body of Christ. If we're doing this right as a church of Christ, if the church is following the Savior, understand this new wineskin type of hope. If you're following the one, the Savior, the one whom he finds ultimate satisfaction in, our hope is not in the systems. Our hope is not in the people. Our hope is not in the government. But our hope is ultimately found upon the one who has all the power and justice and might to change our hearts and hearts of those whom we are called to love. Our message of the church is that kind of hope. Hope in the finished work of Christ. And out of that overflow of experiencing the goodness of the Lord, out of the goodness of the Lord, we cannot help but to love God and love others. We cannot help but to point people to the cross, especially those who are oppressed, to those who are marginalized. We will yearn, pray, fight to make room for people to hear the gospel clearly, for the justice of God to reign. That is the new wineskin type of hope and the gospel mandate, gospel work that we as a church is called to. The hope ultimately lies in the one who came to die for us. And he calls us to follow him. The fasting and prayer reveals to us that type of hope. In your brokenness, in your yearning for food and other things to satisfy, in our fickle, finite bodies, souls, and mind, we look to the one, the ultimate hope that will fulfill the desires the hopes of our heart who will ultimately return with the ultimate banquet at the table of the Lord. That's what hope reveals to us in prayer and fasting. You know what I remember the most about the three-day fast that I had? Breaking of the fast. Because you know, for three days, all you think about is food. You lay there thinking, man, only if I had that food, how can I ever waste food ever in my life again? Anything tastes so good to you, doesn't it? After three days of fasting, I remember breaking the fast. 
prayer could not end fast enough. I was like, why are you praying for everybody in the world today? Let's pray for this food. I want to eat right now, you know? I'm sure everyone else is thinking it except for you, Pastor. Please, let's just finish it and pray. And as I was watching, and you know, you got to be the nice person to make sure everybody else gets served, but you want that food right away. And as you cut whatever that you're eating and that food that went into my body, it nourished my soul. Oh, how satisfying that was. And once I was completely satisfied, I wanted more and more and more more of it. You know, the scripture talks about the greatest banquet that is coming in this season of the fast that you and I are in. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9, when Christ returns, this is the promise of the scripture, promise of the hope that is fulfilled. Then I heard again what sounded like a shout of the vast crowd, the roar of the mighty oceans, waves of the crash of the loud thunder. Praise the Lord! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come when the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She had been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. He added, these are true words. They come from God. If you are in his family, this is your invitation. Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we? As we close our eyes, as we bow our heads, as we think about what it means to fast in prayer. Some of you may need to fast from food at times. Some of you are called to fast from other things in your life for a time being. It's not an easy discipline for us to practice, but we don't do discipline for the sake of discipline. As we see, discipline often shows us our brokenness that points us towards Christ. As we walk with the Lord in this broken prayer journey, let's pray, shall we? To turn to the Lord in humble dependence on the work of Christ that could only satisfy us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us as your own. The Lord, as Jesus told the disciples, that I am the bridegroom that have come, the one that you yearn for, the one can fully, absolutely satisfy all that you long for in your heart is right here. We thank you that you are our bridegroom. Lord, teach us what it means to yearn. In this season, as we're walking through the scripture, in what it means to pray, I love the title, Broken Prayer Journey, as a broken people, Lord, we are broken in many, many places. As, Lord, we are revealed in our broken humanity. Teach us what it means to lift our eyes, to see our holy Savior. Only one that could lead us. Only one that could save us. Only one that could satisfy. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.